Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Amy Grant. And you are currently the owner of Art in Bloom. Is that correct? Yes. I own Art in Bloom Gallery. In Wilmington, North Carolina. Yes. Okay. One of my things I always wonder about creative people and people that come into the creative industries is, of course, how did they get into being creative? So, like, did you have uh, some sort of creative parents supportive uh, family that sort of brought you into the creative industries like you know teachers like what was your sort of childhood and how did you get to being creative yes I was very lucky my mother was a wonderful artist even back in the 50s she went to the University of Georgia and was in their art department so not only was she an artist when she was younger taking classes when she was college age, she learned techniques. So she was a wonderful teacher. My sister and I started learning about art probably before we could talk. <laughs> and our mother made sure we studied with wonderful studio artists. We grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And Fayetteville has wonderful artists. We had a great art museum. And we would also go to Raleigh and Chapel Hill and Durham. And every summer we would travel to a different city in the United States. We would always go to art galleries. You weren't always in the arts yourself, though. So you had a previous career before you came to Wilmington and and opened up this gallery. That's correct. I was a scientist. I started out as a bench scientist, but then over the next 20 years... I worked as a regulatory affairs scientist, so I would meet with the health authorities when our company was sharing the science and make sure that all the different scientists from our company and from the health authorities around the world were speaking the same language. It was great preparation for opening an art gallery later. Oddly enough, yes, does probably have a lot of crossover. So now you moved to Wilmington when? In 2014, I, the last eight years of my career, I worked for this wonderful creative biotech company. We started out with about 30 people and then grew internationally. And throughout my career, one reason I loved the job, I would travel probably once a month to a different location around the world. And I had the opportunity on each weekend to take the time to walk around, meet artists, go to studios, look at museums. So it was a great way to continue my art career. Do you have a collection of your own? I do. I was going to say, it sounds like you do. Okay. And then you chose to open up this art gallery, uh, Art in Bloom in Wilmington. What sort of made you say that's the best career choice for me? Well, for about 15 years before I changed careers, I had a business plan and I had friends helping me. I opened a little gallery in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, southwest of Philadelphia, near Longwood Gardens. And I wanted to see if I truly wanted to open an art gallery. It was at the bottom of an old 90-year-old house and I lived upstairs and I had a lot of help because I worked full-time as a scientist. 
And it was just wonderful. I realized it wasn't only a childhood memory. So for the next maybe 14 years, I went to different cities and tried to imagine the gallery there. And I kept coming back to Wilmington. I met Rhonda Bellamy. I met Gwynefar Roller of Old Books on Front. I just started talking with people here. And Wilmington intrigued me because no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get to know it. There were all these little pockets. But the thing that was obvious to me, there were more artists per capita than I had met in any other place I had visited the past, well, really my whole life. And I imagined it would be wonderful to be part of something that was growing and emerging, even though I couldn't get to know Wilmington, even the history was was difficult to figure out. I thought this would be a great place to get to know. There's a lot more to it than meets the eye. So when you chose to open an art gallery, my perspective, of course, being a a teacher and being a practicing artist myself is it takes a certain kind of personality and sort of chutzpah to like decide to do something like open up a physical brick and mortar space. So what were some of the concerns you had specifically, you know, specifically at that time, uh, you know, 2014, you said 2014 in opening up a a brick and mortar art gallery in, in a reasonably sleepy Southern town. Well, it's sorry, Wilmington. It's interesting I had been scouting for a building for many years and I, with that business plan and all the support I had going into this, I was more worried about the art. Could I find the original art to show? Could the people, the the artists work together? What I had seen in Philadelphia scared me a little bit. It, It was cutthroat and my vision has always been to be collaborative, but that's the way I was raised, too. I was very fortunate. Grandparents lived down the street, and my parents, they, their actions spoke louder than their words. They, they showed me that if everyone is stronger and everyone helps each other, that's better for everybody. Yeah, all, all boats rise kind of tide thing, yeah. Exactly. So... My my next worry was, who do I work with? Because I always knew that part of this gallery, I wanted to surround myself by people who really know what they're doing because I'm very aware I don't know everything. In fact, I know very little, but I do know that the people around me cre- create a lot of what happens. So I found Clark Hip, the wonderful architect who has been around for over 30 years. He's a philanthropist. He's on the the Affordable Housing Committee. So his values really matched mine, and also he's very skilled. He's designed a lot of the buildings and renovations around town. And then my builder happened to work with Clark for over 30 years, Dave Nathans of Urban Building Company. And it just so happened that It was wintertime, so they were able to take a smaller job. And the way they worked together and the way they collaborated with the city really showed me I had nothing to fear. And Clark's vision for this building still amazes me. 
when I bought it, it was literally a rat trap. Just to be clear, when you're saying this building, are you meaning the gallery? Yes, 210 Princess Street. After losing bids on other buildings that I thought would make good galleries, this one came on the market, and it literally was a rat trap. No one had ever renovated since 1892. So when Dave Nathan's team started to uncover layers of floors and ceilings and walls, they found an old 18th century sewer pipe that came directly into the building. So that's why a lot of the people before the renovations had creatures in the walls. And we found skeletons of opossums and rats. And thankfully, all that was corrected. And after they removed a ceiling that I could almost touch with about 10 layers of ceilings, they found this old heart pine from the original builders. And Clark had the vision to put glass on both the front and the back, so the energy flows through the gallery and back. So my two biggest fears were addressed immediately. My third fear, is it truly a viable business? Would we be able to make enough money to stay in business. That's a constant challenge. <laughs> that's a constant challenge for every gallery. I mean, that, or at least that's my impression. It's I mean, true. It's hard. I mean, the idea, because to a certain extent, art, as much as like the people who are involved in it, we appreciate it and we see the great benefits of it, you know, personally and culturally, all these kinds of things. It's, it's a luxury item. And unless there's uh, extra money in people's budgets or, or planned money in people's budgets, it's very hard sometimes to find that extra luxury money to actually invest in something like this. So how do you find people that will collect and then also like work in like growing those relationships as well? Because part of the art world is not just selling a piece, but actually you know growing a collector or, or creating a stronger relationships. Well, as usual, I believe it all starts with the art. And art is in the eye of the beholder, but what is in common is a certain energy and uniqueness to the artist and the piece. And once that speaks to me, I don't have to love a work of art, but I can feel the energy. And one good thing just attracts another. So for example, my very first artist to sign on was Elizabeth Darrow. I had seen her work 25 years ago and she was at the top of my list. I called her, I said, you don't know me, (laughs) but I'm opening a gallery, would you consider it? And she said, oh yeah, I'll come look at the space. And so you can see her work on the walls now. And then she introduced me to Dave Klinger, who's a wonderful photographer, to Trouty Thornton, Mm -hmm. wonderful ceramic artist. So those were some of my early, I call them universal artists, I don't call them local artists. And I had people on my list as I would go around the world and look at art. I had a top 10 and I just started calling people. Okay, speaking of that, I have a question about that. So when you're looking at a person's artwork and then you get to know them, is the does the work like have you ever gotten to a point where you're like I love your artwork but I don't like you <laughs> like as the artist because of course a lot of us there's a lot of egos and a lot of arrogance and all this kind of stuff I'm as guilty of it as anybody else so you know does that affect the art for you like if somehow the 
artist is, let's say, unapproachable or not as, uh, let's say, engaging or as interesting as you had hoped? That's a great question. And some of my earliest mistakes were falling in love with the art and not realizing that every artist in here has an impact on all the other artists and the business because there's only so much time you can promote each artist. So yes, my early years, I had to politely say thank you, but no thank you. And the way our contracts are constructed, at any time the artists can say no thank you, and I respect that if they feel like they're not a fit for a more cooperative type of art gallery, that's fine if they feel like they're not getting enough attention. Contracts, love that question. (laughs) I've heard a lot about like a lot of art galleries in other countries not necessarily doing very strong or strict contracts these days. I've been wondering because with the increase in the internet, you know, I mean like, so like, how could you even enforce a contract to a certain point at this point? Because somebody could sell from their studio or somebody could sell through Instagram or through their own website as well as trying to sell through you. So like, how do you structure a contract so that it still builds a relationship basically between you and your artists? That's a great question. And I spent probably five years looking at other contracts and making some decisions I tried to get our contract to one page. (laughs) That didn't work. I think it's now two pages with some addendums as we learn. But basically, I decided we would not be exclusive. If an artist is invited to show at MoMA or if they're invited to show down the street, I want them to be successful. The only thing we require is communication. So, for example, if someone is showing at the Bergwin Wright House, We'll do a collaboration, so we'll have the postcards for the show here, send people across the street, and we'll ask if they'll do the same. And then that way the artists can show a larger body of work. And other things in our contract, we just try to spell out clearly about ensuring the work, where does the artist's obligation start and stop, and where does the gallery start and stop. One of my biggest expenses is insurance, And it's a great value to pay that because in order to take care of the art and also if we want to show in other venues at the America and Craft Walk Wilmington, I want the art to be covered. I want to be fair. So little details like that are in the contract. Yeah, that's a concern that all artists have is insurance, whether it's shipping or whether it's on and during an exhibition. We're always concerned about the works being insured. And another thing in the contract, we want to know exactly how the artist wants their name represented. So there's a little section in there. Uh, Do you give permission for us to use your images of art and advertising? So our, our contract is a chance to have a discussion, and it's for three months. So in three months, if someone says, oh, I'm not a fit, We say, oh, well, thank you for showing here. And then it's month to month. So it provides more flexibility. We're here to to help the artist and also help the gallery. And those two things are tied together. And we treat it as a business. I think a lot of artists that come in here 
appreciate us handling the sales tax and being licensed. And I was a scientist, so I do things by the book. I think that's the right way to go, but I try to build in flexibility and, and conversations too. Some, as you say, some of the conversations are tough to have. Yeah, I mean, it's not all rock stars and glamour and, and, you know, parties and all that, unfortunately, as much as we wish it was, because that's what the movies and TV try to picture the arts as, but it doesn't work. So you mentioned a little bit about how you chose your original artists, but let's say now, and specifically, let's say now with COVID and the pandemic and all these other kind of things, how do you approach trying to find a new any new artists more to the point are you even like looking for new artists or are you sort of hunkering down and just working with what you have we're working with what we have however we've always had a guest program and one of my favorite galleries in dc the waverly gallery it's kind of on the border near friendship heights metro and near Wisconsin Avenue. <laughs> I love Hempel Gallery myself. Oh, but yeah. yeah, that's a good one. So they they have a cooperative, but once a month they have a guest artist from outside who's not a member. And I thought that would go over well here. And it's a way for an artist to get to know how our gallery works. And if we have a good fit and there are a lot of sales, then we may end up inviting them to show more frequently. With COVID, we have over 60 artists that we work with between the web and the shows we do every month. We rotate the art. So I've been telling the artists that solicit to show here that we're just, we're full to capacity and we just can't. That's even 60s, quite a lot. It is. Thank goodness for the web. <laughs> So, well, and so that leads to the question of how is it going, you know, basically like in comparison to, let's say, a year ago, pre-pandemic COVID versus now, is it as bad as the media and everybody sort of paints it to be? Or have you found new avenues to be able to keep it going? Well, in the early months, we were down about 90%, but starting in maybe July we started to see a lot more purchases over the web. So we went from maybe 30% purchases over the web and 70% here to maybe 90% over the web and 10% here. And then when we were able to open, we opened maybe a couple of months ago, Monday through Saturday, that balance between the web and curbside or in-person purchases shifted it's probably about 40 60 now and and to be honest even before covid i tried to do month over month quarter over quarter and year over year analysis to see where the peaks and valleys were and every year it's been completely different interesting yes so no consistency whatsoever none and then you had hurricane florence so it seems like there was always something that skewed the data Right. Somewhat. I mean, this is a tough town to do or like to sell art in. It, it's a great town to be an artist because there's lots of space and time. It's a very leisurely lifestyle. But to sell art, a lot of times you have to go 
outside of this region or rely on the tourists coming to this region because there are only so many collectors in this region. I mean, it's not a big metropolitan area. So uh, trying to connect with those collectors and or tourists and things like this takes a lot of effort. That's correct. I can tell you've lived here. (laughs) I did for about about 10 years. So, so what what do you feel you need to do these days? So, so sort of at this time during a pandemic, what are some of the unique things that you've come up with to try to connect with, either reconnect with existing collectors or to connect with new ones? Well, I'm very fortunate. One of our staff members is a filmmaker. So we completely shifted. We've told the artist stories through film. We have short video clips and longer short films. For example, Believing in the Process, art by Elizabeth Darrow. It was accepted into the Kukaloris Film Festival. It's going to be screened November 22nd through the 25th. And we also did a series called Studio Views COVID-19. We invited all of our artists to send us a photo of their studio and write with no restrictions what they were doing during COVID. And that turned out to be one of the most popular things to draw people in to purchase. As far as our collectors, we've been open by appointment seven days a week. So people have been great about private appointments with just a few people. And then just staying in touch with our collectors. We know they love certain types of art. And for example, this Ivy Hayes original piece just came into the gallery a couple of weeks ago, so I knew that certain people were looking for original Ivy Hayes paintings, so I called them. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the role of a gallery, to to connect the art to the collectors. But, I mean, one of the things that I wonder a lot about is, in general, how do you find the the ability to do that connection? Because, I mean, that takes a certain kind of personality of a person to run an art gallery who is good at finding these connections of people. Because I would imagine there are a lot of people that walk in the gallery having never bought art before, not knowing what they like. And then somehow you guide them or assist them in finding the sort of the thing that interests them and then foster that and nurture that over time. That's a lot of work. It is, but again, it goes back to the art, and I'm privileged. I'm traveling through time. I'll be here a short time, but the art hopefully will travel and last, and it's it's joyous for people to take something home and to know they love it. And I know with my mother, my grandparents, they never were extravagant, but they knew what they liked. And I have their art collections now, and I treasure it every day. It's a treasure to give it to the next generation when they visit. Do you love that? Is that a memory for you? And then they take it, and I can bring something else out and put it on the wall. <laughs> I want people to have that experience that art is its part of the family and it really has the power to change lives. I'm looking at Gail Tustin's pieces right over your shoulder as I'm talking, and it's always thrilling, even though the art changes in here a lot, to get to be around great art. Okay, so when you're when you were picking up new artists, what 
what kind of characteristics do you seek in the art itself? Because, I mean, there are lots of, you know, uh, my father does icon religious iconography. I do very figurative works. You know, there there's so many. And then there's, of course, any number of different subject matters and mediums and techniques and all this kind of stuff. So do you find that as a gallerist that you're editing with the people you choose to have in the gallery based on the clients or do you try and sort of push the envelope a little bit to encourage new and different things i love pushing the envelope and as long as the art is well made and it has a certain energy to it for example the pieces that i'm looking at by gail tustin if i saw those in nebraska in a museum or in the Netherlands, I would know that she created that. So it's a bit of sort of that visual authenticity, that visual voice. Exactly, the visual voice. That's a great way to talk about it. And I can't really put my finger on the certain quality I'm looking for. It's This sounds weird, but it's almost a vibration or a feeling. Again, even though it might not be my taste I'm, I'm fortunate i have a team of people and we look at the art together and a lot of times it may have not appealed to me but we bring it into the gallery and people just love it so it it's wonderful to be reminded that i'm not right all the time <laughs> no one is it's very humbling but it's also a privilege to be around this type of creativity too Okay, when it comes to pricing of artwork, this is the that endless question that we all struggle with, whether we're the person who creates the artwork or the person who's trying to sell the artwork. What kind of considerations do you put in? Like, so if you have an artist, I would imagine many of these artists that you have already are selling, so they already have some set prices from other galleries or previous exhibitions but like if you had the opportunity to sort of start off and set somebody's price from from ground zero how would you create that pricing structure well again this is the scientist in me i have a formula i love a formula (laughs) so the first point you made they may already have a track record i ask for that documentation so i can understand where they're at i never like to have a different price than what they're already asking and if they're in other galleries I want to honor that price if they don't come to me with a track record I give them our spreadsheet in Excel and I I say this will really help you if you start recording this information and it goes into your portfolio then I'll do a market comparison similar to what they do in real estate So I'll look at similar art. I can never find a direct match, but I'll look all over the country, the world, locally, and do a spreadsheet. And then the team that works here, everybody brings something so different to the table. We have the filmmaker, Dave Klinger's a photographer, Brooke Bauer is an artist and art administrator. And I'll ask for their opinion, but not tell them what I think because I don't want to bias their opinion. And that's the last step. So I'll show them all the data and then we'll have a conversation. Then that's presented to the artist. And some artists say, oh, thank you for all the information. Really appreciate it. Some artists say, I'm not going to do that. I need to ask $5,000 for an eight by 10 
oil painting. <laughs> that's an exaggeration. I should hope so. That's <laughs> that's quite top tier. Yeah. But so, some people love the data and they're they're grateful. And in the end, if we can't get a lot of data, we'll say, well, let's do this and let's see over a three month period what happens. I find I you've said the three month thing a couple of times. I find that to be really short period of time because I've had relationships with collectors that just to get them to the point where they're even buying one piece could take six months, nine months, a year. So, I mean, the idea that you're doing just like test somebody out for three months seems really fast. Well, the good news is it's just a first step in the relationship. It's a structured way to be introduced to each other. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't end after three months. So... A lot of times I've had pieces in here for a year or two and the staff and I feel like it's excellent. Just we would love to have the pieces in our homes and we can't figure out why it hasn't sold. But sure enough, the right person walks in and they'll say, I want that, that and that. And we just look at each other. We, we knew this was going to a good home. It was just a matter of time. But the contract it's more of a relationship builder than a specific deadline or anything. And as we go month to month, we learn and we talk with the artists. I love our inventory system. Every month we get to have a dialogue with the artists because when we send their report out, it's not just a flat report. This is what's sold. These are the collectors. These are the numbers. So long. We always. I try to pick up the phone and say congratulations. These were the comments. Okay, I have two questions from that last conversation. There, <laughs> one. Do you you said inventory system? Do you use a particular software, or, or like is this just an Excel spreadsheet that you oh, figured we, out? We love the software Go Antiquing. G O capital A Antiquing. Okay. It's so user-friendly. It's really easy as the point of sale. And then it collects all the data and spits out reports. Before we adopted that system that was recommended by one of the staff, it used to take me five to six hours to do the monthly reconciliation. Now it takes me 15 minutes because we double-check everything. Oh, good software can save you so much time. Yes, and the artists love the monthly reports. They love the annual report for their taxes. Now, also, you mentioned, uh, the, so within that inventory system, you mentioned sharing who's buying the work. I've always sort of wondered this, like, because some galleries tell artists who buys their work, and some art, some galleries do not share that information. So you've chosen to share that information with your artists? Absolutely. We're such a small footprint. We're a thousand square feet under the roof and 500 square feet in the courtyard that the artist studios are an extension of the gallery. So many of our artists do commission artwork and they know they get to know the customer, which we love. That means the customer feels welcome and they're here for life actually they have a good experience so a lot of times the artists already know the customer and we like to share who bought because they'll say oh yeah you know i've known them for 15 years that's wonderful or 
if they're brand new, all from Chicago, uh, they're putting your sculpture in their outdoor sculpture garden. There's going to be a Dwell Magazine article. And I, I think it helps the artists be more creative to know that people all over are appreciating their art. And they really, all of our artists, they realize we're running a business and we're fighting for them. So they fight for us, which I love. Okay, two, th- two things that sort of popped in my mind. One is, is uh, are you willing to share your percentage that you do? Because like some galleries, 40-60, some 50-50. Like what's your, your agreement with um, artists? It varies. If we don't know each other and those first three months are a total roll of the dice, it's a little lower. And lower, like, I'm not, I don't, I'm lower to which end? So, like, 40% you, 60% artist lower, or the other way around? Um, the other way around. Okay. So, so, it's you, more of an even you, split. And then over time, depending on how the artist does, it's more in favor of the artist. So, like everything in here, it changes, it's a bit flexible, but it's based on reason. <laughs> Well, I would imagine it's based on track record, basically. Like the more you sell, the better you are, the you know more reputation you have, the, the more leverage you have in the negotiations. Exactly. And if we have an artist who would like to work in here and um, is here a lot, bringing in customers, just using their time to greet customers, that goes heavily in their favor, too. So, so there's a bit a, of a co-op then. Exactly. There's a formula where the more the artists invest, the more they receive. And, and then the artists who don't want to invest, they seem to be happy with not as favorable a percentage because they, I think it's pretty transparent. We work really hard. There are four of us on staff now. We used to have six before COVID. And so they see that there's a lot of overhead, but it's acupuncture. We use it to try to promote the art and sell the art and tell the artist's story. I love that we have films now. It's so exciting. <laughs> yeah, believing in the process, Elizabeth Darrow. And, and we're working on a film about Gail Tustin. So our student intern from UNCW is helping us compile a massive bibliography about Gail's art and life. She, so to, she has quite a bibliography. Yes, and a lot of it isn't in one place, so we're excited to use that to help interview her and then help film her story. We have a crew of three that's been working with her. <laughs> yeah, she's got her stuff, uh, her her research all at the UNCW Library as well. Yes. Yes, okay. In your, okay, one thing that I noticed, um, and this is a, a, an issue with a lot of... Uh, galleries throughout the world really is is like you have a limited space uh, as far as your brick and mortar gallery probably more limited than i'm accustomed to in europe in europe oftentimes galleries are substantially larger but and and so therefore the artwork that you have on display in the gallery is what i would consider sort of smaller um, more intimate works and not quite so large and grandiose so like 
did you, was this a conscious choice to do like smaller works in the gallery to make it sort of more affordable, more accessible, or or is there some intention to expand at some point and like go to larger scale works? So like, what's your thinking on that? Well, to go to larger scale, we're very fortunate. Our friends at Artworks allowed us to use their seventy two hundred square foot gallery, and their ceilings are I think twenty five feet high. Also, our friends at 216 North Front, the old expo, a gallery and, and museum, they allowed us to use their space, and we had 12 by 12 feet paintings. And so I always thought smaller is better, smaller is beautiful. And then there would be a way if we had large works to find a venue, and that's worked out great. I always had the idea the gallery would just be alive, so whatever we put in here would take over. I never wanted any one type of art, and we did have a 12 by 12 painting in here. <laughs> it's too large for this It space. was really interesting. It felt like that story in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where you the painting drew the people into the painting. <laughs> well, that, at that scale, you don't even have enough space to back up to properly sort of experience it. Because, you know, every piece has its correct best distance to stand in front of to experience it. And a piece that large needs, you know, 20 feet to step back to look at. And I'm fortunate the staff has experience in large installations. One of our staff members was a curator at the Tertian Center at Appalachian State for 14 years. And she's been in the art world for over 25. She studied in New York. So I think she loves the challenge of these other venues. And like you said, it's a great town for cooperation. And Well, we, you know, I have, you know, my positive and my negative experiences with Wilmington, but just like I do any place I've ever lived, you know, um, it's a tough town. It's a lovely place to, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying it, but it's a lovely place to sort of like drop out of the the hustle and bustle of a major metropolitan city and sort of relax a little bit. And the, the, it's not super expensive to live here. It's not super stressful to live here. It's very laid back and you can just sort of put some time and your energy into things you enjoy versus necessarily trying to keep up with whatever the fast-paced thing in the big city is these days. So it, it has its pros and its cons in many ways. True. And I've found my fellow gallery owners are wonderful to work with. And Rhonda Bellamy, I think this is her ninth year as the leader of the Arts Council. She is a force for good. She brings us all together. So I have not found that frenetic kind of cutthroat energy that I always found in Philadelphia and New York. So you said you wanted to ask me some questions? Yes, tell me about your life as an artist. How did you start? Where are you at? (laughs) (laughs) That is a very long story. Um, My life as an artist. Um, My father was a painter as his undergraduate degree before going into theology so he's a minister my mother's an interior decorator so between the two of them I had a sort of a rich eclectic childhood and then 
I grew up around the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., traveling to cathedrals and seeing, you know, mosaics and frescoes and all kinds of beautiful stuff throughout, and, and churches and all kinds of stuff throughout the world whenever we could travel. And then, I mean, in the end, what happened was, the, the realistically, the, the answer of what happened was, I was at, where was I? University of Iowa. And I got there with the intention of being a Native American studies major because I had already studied with a Cherokee shaman and, and I was very interested in that. And I was like, oh, I'm going to study this at university. And I got there and they said, okay, well, you'd have to start all over as a freshman. And by that time I was a junior and I was just like, I'm not doing that. I was like, fuck it, I'll be an artist. And that's pretty much it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good story. So I just, I just decided to study art instead and started at the University of Iowa. Then I went to the Corcoran School of Art in Washington, D.C. Then I went to the San Francisco Art Institute for my master's. And now, uh, now then I've taught at a number of different places. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure what you're asking more is about like my artistic practice. It's, um, I generally work figuratively. Um, often sort of on that line of uh, eroticism, sensuality kinds of things, a little bit of not like nudity, but let's say like a little bit more flesh than, you know, might be traditional. Um, so Europe's great for me. The Middle East was horrible for me, obviously, by the, the that nature. But um, I've had it. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and like be like bullshit. Like um, I've, I haven't had a great sales career. Uh, it, figurative is generally more difficult. You know, I know that, and I sort of knew that when I chose it in the first place. But it's what it interests me. So I sort of set myself up for a difficult career by choosing a, a subject matter that is more difficult to sell. Um, so it, yeah, I have not had the most consistent sales record. I find that certain regions are better for me than others. Um, like Germany and France actually are very good for me. Mm -hmm. Where uh, And certain parts of the United States are better for me, like generally major metropolitan areas, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, but not so much the rest of the country. Um, and I was in Wilmington for many years, and I sold a few here, but very few. Uh, it's... Mm -hmm. Uh, not basically what I learned over the course of that was every style of art has its market. So that, and this is one thing that like I've learned also part through partly through doing the podcast is just because you live somewhere does not mean that that's where your market is. Right. So oftentimes, even if you live in, you can live in middle of nowhere or in a major metropolitan city, but that doesn't mean that that's your market. Your market may be Japan or, or South Africa or whatever, or you know, Peru. So it's, it's, sometimes it's more about sort of finding your market instead of sort of, because a lot of times as artists, we sit around and we're like, oh, I, I don't, nobody likes my work. And it's like, well, no, it's not that nobody likes your work, it's that your work's not getting in front of people that like it. Right. So we we had a figurative show by an artist from the Netherlands. Her name's Francisca Decker, and people were just blown away by it. It it was so different here, and we enjoyed it. It took over the gallery, and she had she sold four pieces, which was excellent. But you could tell that when people walked in. They didn't know where they were, which I loved. I, I love it when people can come in here and, and forget that they're in the world. They're, they become part of the art. But you're right. In that case, 
her market was definitely in Europe. Yeah, figurative, especially figurative with some nudity in it, is definitely more European than it is American as a, as a generalization. But I mean, there are certain pockets in the Americas that that appreciate you know nude figures and things like that. But it's generally much more European. One thing I think about a lot is, is galleries that exist in sorry again to do this but like in tourist areas I find have difficulty sort of again pushing the limits and sort of branching out because you have to make a living you know like you have to sell so to a certain extent you have to and I apologize for this but you have to pander a little bit to the the buying public as far as what they will buy instead of pushing it too much for what you hope they will buy or what you want them to buy and I find that to be like personally a little bit soul crushing, like because I want to, I want to educate people and I want to make people more thoughtful in what they buy instead of just sort of making it easy for them to buy. How do you feel about that? The way I look at it, art is in the eye of the beholder. So if we have. For example, a Deborah Bucci or Bradley Carter who are doing these gorgeous original paintings. And if they're willing to do an archival print, so maybe a new collector or someone who doesn't have $500 to spend can have a piece of their art. To me, that's not pandering to people who can't afford the larger pieces. It's offering it to them. I come from a works on paper background. I take no offense to works on paper. Oh, good. And their their art is so well done. They use that eight inch, not eight inch, the um, the larger mat, you know, that keeps the glass from touching the paper. Yeah. They use archival materials for the mat. So the things we sell at lower price points are consistent with the higher end art. They're built to last. And I feel really comfortable that when they leave the building, they, they speak well of the artist and the gallery. So we do have lower priced items, but there are many, many gems, G-E-M-S <laughs> versus, you know, I'm going to try to sell you a t-shirt that says I love Wilmington. No, I was not accusing you of that. <laughs> Don't worry about it. No, but also within that, like, so you're in a, a city that is very seasonal. So like, do you see that there's a, a, a prominent buying season? Like traditionally in most metropolitan areas, the big buying season would be autumn and the worst buying season would be summer uh, in like cities. But I would imagine that's different here in the, in the coastal area. Well, year over year, it's changed. My first year, everyone told me, oh, you should close January, February, and March. And January and February were our best months that year. The next year, I believe it was summer. The next year, it was the holidays. The fourth year, it was several of the seasons which... Wilmington is trending to be less seasonal. And then the next year, I think it was all about the holidays. It's so unpredictable. 
except the longer we're open, the more repeat customers we have. So that's tending to be a trend. And they could decide to buy at any time. And and it's interesting, if we sell four major pieces, that could account for 50 to 100 of the smaller items. So a lot of the sales is based on who buys when, is it a large piece? And well, actually, which leads to an interesting question, which is sort of like, so what? what's the uh, more common price point, I guess, that people do seem to be buying? Uh, you know, are people buying bigger pieces or are they buying smaller pieces? I, I guess specifically sort of asking about sort of these days with COVID and all this. So like when they're buying online, oh, wait, I'll actually differentiate that. Do you see a difference between the price point that people buy online versus the price point that people buy in store? Not really, because a lot of the people who buy online have been here before and they just love the artist and then the artist has a new series and they purchase. So it varies. I think that's going to be my answer to every question. (laughs) I wish I could find more of a pattern. Okay. Well, on a, on an average though, what's your what's your sort of average price point of just anything you have in the store? Uh, I shouldn't say store gallery. Probably five hundred dollars. Okay. Okay. Because I mean, some galleries are more you know five thousand, ten thousand. How important is the archivalness of the materials? Because I hear different stories from different people about like it's important to use archival materials and sell our, you know, artists who use archival materials. And some people say it's not that important. It, what's more important is the craftsmanship or the quality than it is the actual archivalness of the materials. Oh, I'm a big materials person because people come to us all the time and ask us for advice on what to do with acid marks and bad mats bleeding into the art. I've seen so many horror stories and beautiful art lost that I always recommend the best materials possible because I want the art to travel through time. It's always a budgetary concern. I mean, you know, you use as good a material as you can afford as an artist. Right. I, I, I mainly worry about the matting and the framing too. I've seen a lot of damage done by poor choices for the art itself, the only problem I've seen, the person didn't have museum glass on the piece, so that paper back in the old days, it it browned up because it was being hit by light, mm-hmm. and there was nothing the preservationists could do. It was a very rare painting, and the woman who came to us for advice said, if I had only known, I could have saved this painting. Well, the first thing is, is don't put paintings in direct sunlight. Mm-hmm. That's just the first thing. Like, it's really interesting. Like, a lot of people who aren't in the creative industry, but they buy art and put it in their home, they put their art, like, in direct sunlight because it, it really does bring out the colors and makes it look beautiful. I totally agree with that. But it's a horrible idea because it completely destroys the work of art. Right. (laughs) Unless it's like 
a metal sculpture or a stone sculpture or something that's you know light fast and has no real pigments or anything that will fade over time totally legitimate so like your marble sculptures great put those in direct sunlight but not anything with pigment in it that's just me <laughs> when you're looking for artists to sell slash what's your experience with buyers as far as mediums so like do you specifically say like i'm you know this month i want to pick up a photographer or a painter or a watercolorist or and then do you find that people are shopping by medium by subject matter like what are people how do people approach purchasing works many people just walk in and say i'll know it when i see it and i agree i i can understand that we do feature a photographer of the month we had a national photography show last year. Our friends at Artworks loaned us that 7,200-square-foot space. We had over 70 artists from across the U.S., and so we loved so much of that art, we decided we wanted to show some photography. And people started getting wind of that, so we'll have people come in just to say, well, who, who is your photographer this month? A lot of people who are buying for their new homes, they're looking for 2D art, something for the walls. But other than that, it's really random. A lot of people want to buy gifts. So these 3D paper mache bottle pieces by Elizabeth Darrow have been great for gifts. Uh, like I enjoy 3D works, but unfortunately I have three very rambunctious cats in the house. So 3D works always get destroyed and they're just, I've gotten to the point that I simply can't collect something unless I can store it somehow, basically like put it on a bookshelf behind glass or under a latrine or put it on the wall, of course. So there are limitations that everybody has and 3D art is oftentimes a bit more difficult than 2D because everybody has walls, but not everybody has counters. Moving forward, what are the plans for the gallery? So are you planning to expand, do new things? Because, I mean, again, we're in the time of the pandemic right now, and so we're all having to rethink how we do things. So are there any sort of ideas that you've come up with to try and perpetuate and expand on programs and, and opportunities for collectors as well as artists? We, we just started our sixth year on October 2nd. And the main things, as I said before, we're doing more filmmaking. We are hosting private parties for up to eight people with social distancing and masks. And we had our first one last Wednesday. It went very well. I'm continuing to write for a lot of grants. I think that's the main reason I was able to keep the staff and not lay off anyone the two staff members who left us, they actually found jobs. Uh, one was a nursing student and she graduated, so she found a great nursing job. So it's always a goal to keep the staff because the gallery would not be a gallery without the talented people that are working here. Okay, wait one second. You said grants? So is this yeah. a nonprofit or a for-profit? No, it's a for-profit, but because of COVID-19, okay. there have been, uh, for the first time in the history of the gallery, there are several grant opportunities for small businesses 
usually applying for the ones. Uh, there are a lot out there for businesses with under 100 employees. And then our city had some, they called it the R3 grants for revitalize, restore, reopen. We received one of those. And then the Arts Council is the administer for the NC CARES grants. There was the LICS grant program. That's a national one. Let's see, there were the EIDL loans. The first X amount of money was a grant versus a loan. And how successful have you been with these? Are they easy to fill out? Have you been receiving these things? The government ones are very complicated, but the local ones have been excellent. Rhonda Bellamy's administration of that NC Cares grant is phenomenal. It's a statewide grant, and the template is maybe one page. Love a one-page with, with attachments. Very easy, and then Rhonda's accessible if you ever run into a, a problem. There's a large grant called Heartbeat on Main Street that it's it is administered by the Hartford. So I've applied for that. I have no idea if we'll receive it. How many have you applied for and how many have you received? I've applied for about 20 now. I like percentages. And, and we've received five. That's um, pretty good. Yeah, mostly one of them. I think one of my favorite ones, it was the county one right at the beginning where I was thinking I'm going to have to close and or lay off the staff, and it was killing me. It was a lottery grant. It was from the county. and you, Lottery, like the money came, for oh, it no, came they, from the lottery? Uh, you applied, and then they picked just randomly 130 businesses. I can't tell if that's incredibly democratic or absurd. <laughs> well, over 700 businesses applied and we were just lucky. We were one of the 130 picked and it was so timely because I was about to have that difficult conversation. Either everyone was going to have to slash their hours or three people were going to have to go in order for me to keep one person. It, and then I was thinking, I might as well just close the gallery because the staff is the gallery. They're so excellent. Even when they were working from home, you'd think sometimes that people at home would just put their feet up and drink some coffee. I don't know. I've, I've worked from home for like three years, so like I'm perfectly good with it every, I think they every, work everybody harder. else everybody else is catching up to my lifestyle now <laughs> with with covid and all this stuff so like this is the way i've been living my life for years now totally okay so how are these you know cuz i always wonder cuz like i'm not applying for any of these grants because unfortunately i fall into this weird little thing cuz i'm i'm an american but i don't live in america mm. and i live in the czech republic but i'm not czech so of course i'm basically eligible for none of these things but <laughs> So I'm interested. How, are they working? Are they helpful? Are they a waste of time? Like, give uh, me some they feedback have, on They've them. kept the gallery open. Okay, so like a substantial amount of income from these. Oh, yeah. They, they served as a bridge March, April, May, June when it was crazy in here. We just didn't have the sales. But just to be clear, I want to make sure. Like, So this is grants like so so it's they're not loans they're nothing like this so they they are gi basically gifts exactly just, and know. they help me basically here pay the staff because without revenue 
I can't pay the staff. That's how business works. Yes. Yes. And for covering us those four months to the point where we came up with creative ways, the same things you're asking about to get through this. And we do free local delivery, curbside pickup. We ship at a very reasonable fee. And I think the delivery has helped a lot because that can be done with a mask. And I put the, they'll open their garage. I'll put the art in their garage and then ring the doorbell and wave. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I did the same thing with pizza the other night. It's great. <laughs> it's been helpful. Art and pizza. Maybe I should start bringing a pizza when I bring the art. <laughs> pizza and beer and hanging art. I mean, that's that's my love of my life right there. Like That's hanging any gallery exhibition I've ever done. Um, all right. One other thing that sort of, because going back to pricing and this kind of stuff, there's a longstanding debate that I hear in different galleries about putting prices of artwork online versus not online. So like, do you, I didn't do a lot of research, I, but I believe you do not put prices on. No, we website. do. You do. We, we are, we're not the 1950s gallery model. We want to be transparent. And my great grandfather was, and grandmother, they had a furniture store. And then my, my grandmother's husband went into the business and we used to hear all the business talk around the table as kids and basically I learned from them that if you're fair if you try to practice and be fair and transparent that's the best business so even back in the turn of the century my great-grandfather and grandmother knew that (laughs) well I mean the arts in particular I mean but every business but the arts in particular it's all about reputation like I mean nothing's worse than having your reputation tarnished or having a bad reputation and so like be having a good strong sincere and honest and truth you know truth truthful relationship with anybody whether it's collector or artist is always a good thing in the arts world because people like that because basically nobody wants to work with somebody they don't like that's true and and i make mistakes all the time i i learned as a scientist embrace my mistakes celebrate them and don't blame other people and I think when people see most people when they see you trying and you do make a mistake they're more willing to think of it as human instead of incompetent so when we make mistakes here we try really hard to go in the favor of the customer and the artist if we make the mistake and I don't think I could sleep at night if I tried to cheat anyone or something it just wouldn't it wouldn't seem right to me that's karma yeah, yeah. i hope people can pick up on that that we try <laughs> now social media websites since we were sort of on that topic do you use social media you talked about the videos but like so generally like people sort of specialize in one versus another so do you use like facebook instagram twitter what's your what's your social media of choice we love instagram because it's so visual and that tends to bring in a lot of people i also do a lot on facebook just because a lot of our customers are on facebook and also when i do something on instagram it can automatically go on facebook which i like which is fascinating like when you post something on instagram it can be it can be put onto facebook but when you put something on facebook it does not automatically put it on instagram what's up with that like they got to get their act together they do and then i have a blog and 
I also have a little bit of Twitter, but it's mainly I use a link to something that I'm really excited about. So, well, Twitter is limited anyway, but I, it's not my favorite one, so I don't use it as much. And then we have Pinterest. Again, some of our customers are big Pinterest fans, so we we a lot of times our customers will lead us a certain way sometimes. Sure, and, yeah. What, now, what about like newsletter, e-newsletters, things like this? Like, Do you use these kinds of things? Oh, yeah, once a week we use MailChimp. And our client base grew from 10, I think we're at around 2,500 now, subscribers to our newsletter. Which is pretty good for a town this size, yeah. I, mean, I was listening to w, the National Public Radio, and the, you know they're having trouble with their pledge drives this this season, and so and they're throwing out some numbers like, "We need three thousand people," and I'm like, "That's all you need? <laughs> That's it? <laughs> like three thousand people, and you're done?" Like, it's it seems small to me living in Europe, you know. Right. And so it's fascinating. Anyways, all right, last thing, ish. Any advice for somebody else who's thinking about opening up a gallery, especially sort of opening up a gallery now, or some things that have worked well for you or not worked well for you in the pandemic the, to try and give advice to other people so they don't have to make the same mistakes that you might have made? Well, in my experience, if you can purchase the space you're in, it relieves you of the big pressure to pay the landlord every month, you become your landlord. So there's more flexibility. I think the main mistake I made in the very beginning, even though on paper, I knew my overhead, I needed to watch the cost more carefully, even though I approached it as a scientist and I had a spreadsheet. Until the end of that first year, I didn't really understand that balance and even though I was reconciling my bank statements every month I, I learned to do a quarterly review instead of just semi-annual and annual and another thing make sure you have a nice contingency fund and plenty of savings because I promised myself I would never go into debt that I but I knew it was it could be that the holidays would bring in half the revenue for the whole year. So rather than have to borrow that first part of the year, I would dip into my contingency fund and then be able to pay that back at the end of the year. So just know your limits, know what you can live with. I always wonder about galleries and whether they go into debt or have contingency funds to help because running a gallery anywhere in the world at any size is always um, in flux like the, it is one of the most uh, inconsistent businesses you could imagine because I mean like you not only do is it the seasonal thing with the the, the beachgoers and things like this in this region but it's also if you happen to have a hurricane suddenly you're you're out for a month like so like the 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 literally natural disasters can affect your bottom line and that's totally unforeseeable so that idea of like whether or not they have enough money in their contingency or they go into debt is always something that I wonder about. Galleries. Yeah, I recommend don't go into debt. 
it just psychologically it bring it could bring everything down. So then, how much of a contingency fund would you recommend? Like how many months worth of operating budget? Uh, in mine, I have six months, mm-hmm. but I was able to do that because when a big company bought the little biotech where I was out, at, they asked for volunteers to leave. So I use that money basically to start the gallery. Without that, I could never have done it. Sure. So, well, but just the 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 information that six months worth of a of a of a fund that's a good amount for people to be thinking of because I would imagine if somebody's listening to this, they might say like, "Oh, three months is enough," or "I need nine months," or "I need a year." Like, so to know that like six months worth of an operating budget is what you've been able to work out. That's the kind of advice I'm looking for. Exactly, and that way, let's say I've borrowed from that contingency fund to get me through the holidays. If we have a bad holiday season, that tells me why I may have to close. Well, that's interesting because maybe too much of a contingency fund might basically make it so you believe you can continue to run something that's really not working for too long. Like, so maybe six months is the right amount of time because then six, six months off being poor, six months compensating. And if it's if you can't get it back to balanced by that point, then maybe there's a problem with the business model. Exactly. And, and then the last thing, always be able to ask for help. So example, we have the Small Business Center at Cape Fear Community College, and they have free counseling, free workshops, and there are other entities in town that can really help. Also, it took me a while for the light bulb to go off that I needed to hire staff. I thought I could do everything by myself. So after the first year, I was exhausted, but one of the artists introduced me to someone who became our first staff member, and then everything improved. Random question. Are you LLC, a company? Like how did, what did you structure? LLC. LLC, okay. Anything, any last advice or input or anything you want to flesh out that we touched on that you didn't get to expand on? Uh, I enjoyed your questions. Thank you very much. And I'm curious to see your art and I wish you well. And stay in touch. And I want to hear all your podcasts now. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.